3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. It's Thursday the 3rd of September. So we're still a couple of weeks out from the end of stage 4 restrictions and we'll have a clear idea of what will happen come Sunday once we hear from the Premier who will announce his roadmap. Uh, so we've got two uh, really interesting interviews this week. Um, so after the news with Kate Kelly, we'll be hearing from Robbie Bundle, who joins Carly to discuss the Yalanguth Art Prize. So Yalanguth, meaning yesterday in Wairarong, is an innovative augmented reality experience, expressed entirely through sound, accessible via a location-specific mobile app. The Yalanguth Prize is seeking submissions from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists living on or connected to the land we now call Victoria to visually represent the Yalanguth app. So submissions close uh, quite soon on the 11th of September. Then we'll pick up our poetry and writing segment. So this week we'll hear Groundwork, a text written and read by Snack Syndicate. The text was part of Endless Study, Infinite Debt produced with Liquid Architecture in June this year. And Snack Syndicate is Andrew Brooks and Astrid Lahange. Uh, then we'll hear from uh, Jayan Jonyad, who is a Rohingya refugee and journalist presently or currently living in Jakarta, Indonesia. So he was studying engineering in Myanmar when he was forced to abandon his chosen career path and flee into exile. He has since become a student of political science as well as a writer and human rights activist searching for a safe and durable solution for refugees in Indonesia, but also around the world. So he joins us to discuss uh, specifically the Rohingya persecution and life in limbo for people seeking asylum in Indonesia and the added COVID-19 dynamics. So now to the news with Kate Kelly. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. People living in overcrowded public housing towers will be offered the opportunity to move to private rental properties for two years to slow the spread of of the coronavirus. Nine towers in Flemington and North Melbourne were placed under hard lockdown in July following COVID-19 outbreaks in public housing estates, with 3,000 residents banned from leaving their homes for five days. So under the state government's 31.7 million tower relocation program, up to 420 private rental properties will be leased for two years and offered to high-rise estate tenants at greater risk due to the coronavirus. The voluntary program will target public housing tenants living in larger households or those who have medical issues that make them more vulnerable to COVID-19. The government says it will significantly reduce the risk of coronavirus transmission and open up much-needed social housing for Victorians on the Victorian Housing Register. 
An estimated 80,000 people are waiting for public housing in Victoria. The state has the lowest proportion of social housing stock in Australia at 3.2% of all housing, compared with the national average of 4.5%. And up in Preston, a decision about the market's future will be fast-tracked to help stimulate Victoria's struggling economy, but Darwin Council fears moving too quickly could undermine the review process. So the site in Melbourne's northern suburbs has been earmarked for redevelopment with plans to add apartment buildings, raising the prospect that the market could be moved within the block. Private owner Preston Market Developments has committed to the market's future. The Victorian Planning Authority last month said it would accelerate its planning control review of the market precinct along with 18 other projects. The decision has put Darwin Council offside, with Mayor Susan Rinney saying it has raised concerns about the market's future. And she said, Council was not formally consulted or informed of this decision, and we've written to the VPA asking for an explanation and the full details of the process to be released. So the Victorian Planning Authority Chief Executive Stuart Malesi said the Council and community would have an opportunity to make, make submissions to an independent panel. As part of Victoria's economic recovery plan out of the pandemic, the authority was asked to identify projects that were close to shovel-ready and had high economic value. And coal mining company Adani asked a Queensland court for orders that would have allowed its representatives to conduct an unannounced search at a family home of an environmental activist. But the Supreme Court has rejected the move, noting the search could result in humiliation and family distress for Ben Pennings and others. So Dani said on Wednesday it was suing Pennings, the national spokesperson for the group Gailey Blockade, which has sought to disrupt the operations of Adani, its suppliers and contractors. The former Greens leader Bob Brown released a statement on Tuesday which said the legal action would send a shudder through every Australian who values democracy, free speech and the right to peaceful protest. Adani has steadfastly claimed in repeated public statements that, that the campaigns by activists had failed to stop progress on the Carmichael project. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR community radio to keep connected to the community we'll get through this and hope to see you real soon bye all right now we're going to go to a song so this is the remix of hold strong by maisha which was released earlier this year and this remix features hoodsy just be and just war it's on maisha's new two-track remix package nyarangu Thank you. 
Hold Strong by Maisha, which was recently released on the two-track remix package Nyarangu and features Hoodsy, Just Be, and Just War. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. 
Today, I'm joined by Robbie Bundle to speak about the Yellengut Project, an innovative augmented reality experience expressed entirely through sound, accessible via location-specific mobile app. Robbie Bundle is a singer, songwriter and musician who has been writing and performing music for more than 35 years. In 2014, Robbie formed the Melbourne Community Indigenous Film Collective, an unincorporated Indigenous organisation that supports the development of Indigenous filmmakers in Victoria. Robbie has been a key force in initiating Yellengut and is a member of the Project Working Group. Welcome, Robbie. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Uh, thanks for having me, Carl. That's great. Good to be here. So can you first start by telling listeners a bit about the Yellengut app and your involvement with the project? Um, well, I think first things first, um, my involvement spanning back, I met Zoe Dawkins and Pip Chandler, I think it was about five years ago now, and uh, they'd approached me about some ideas that they had, uh, and they're based at Storyscape, and they run Storyscape. And they'd um, done lots of uh, similar projects around Melbourne and elsewhere um, in communicating with the community um, at, on various projects that they were, were doing at that time. And they said, look, what's the possibility of... Um, you know, we've got this kind of concept. Um, we just started chatting about um, the generalised possibilities of uh, of such a venture. So the app was kind of born into a space that was um, unoccupied at the time. So we thought, okay, there's a there's a um, a space for this to exist. Um, um, what that could look like, what it did look like, we had no idea. Um, it was only just sort of a uh, skirting around the peri- peripheral of that con- of a concept. Um, so Yellenguth was kind of, um, you know, it went through, you know, years of the first initial years were kind of uh, painstakingly um, having meetings and, uh, uh, you know, working out how this was going to unfold. And through the good work and due dil- diligence of uh, Zoe and Pip, um, they were able to um, get initial funding for it. Um, then we'd formed a um, uh, previously before that though we'd formed a group, a working group, which is um, existing of so many amazing people uh, from various walks of life in the community. Um, Young Guth is, uh, is is an interesting thing. It's um, a mobile app audio augmented reality experience, really. Um, that I guess connects people to places and um, Aboriginal history through oral stories and soundscapes. Um, so that in itself was, was something that we, we toyed around with and, and, and wanted to explore some more and what that could actually mean, what does it mean, what did it mean. Um, telling, you know, Aboriginal history through through such a, 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 a space, um, mm. augmented reality really. So, um, and... Mm. And Yellingooth is a wrong word meaning uh, yesterday. So this whole concept was was uh, kind of born out of its necessity, really. So yeah, that's that's a little bit of a brief history. And Robbie, can you tell us uh, who else is involved in the project, and also some of the stories that you're hoping will come out of this project? Oh look, uh, we've got the uh, uh, Storyscape uh, Yana Pictures City. Uh, 
University of Melbourne. These are some of the working group people. Uh, Melbourne School of Design, RMIT, and there's, uh, there's amazing, uh, the project collaboration is absolutely stunning. Um, key elders, uh, Bobby Nichols, um, Colin Hunter, um, and all of those other people that I mentioned, uh, are in that as well, but they, those two are, are also driving forces in this project, and they've very been very instrumental in and and, um, and and looking at and bringing other people into the into the sphere of conversation. Um, so they were able to to you know um, to manage um, situation of bringing people together you know, like project partners and things like that. So, you know, the Warrungi were on Cultural Heritage Council, Aboriginal Corporation, um, Colin, uh, Hunter and uh, Charlie Woolmore, Yarn Pitches, uh, Bobby Nichols and Re- Rebecca McLean, Melbourne Community Indigenous Film Collectives, myself, uh, Storyscape Community Arts Organisation, Pip Chandler and Zoe Dawkins, RMIT University Animation Games Inc. Interactivity, Chris Barker, Kate Gawley and Max Piantoni, University of Melbourne School of Design, Janet McGuire and Julian Wallace. Julian Wallace. So that's a, a, an amazing group of people um, as a starting point uh, to, to work with, yeah. And the first iteration of the app is based around Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. Um, so what's the importance of this location and some of the stories that are going to be told around that area? Well, I mean, the first getting, getting it off the ground, it came, it was an essential part to get, um, the stories right and to be able to record the stories in the first place. You know, it come, coming together, uh, with Fitzroy based community arts organizations, um, you know, back in the early person in 2015, um, and bringing all the rich history of Aboriginal Fitzroy to life, so uh, in the digital story trail. So it enabled people to be uh, elders to to be interviewed uh, by um, the young um, trainees at Charcoal Lane, and they were able to. Uh, come together at a, at a really amazing place like uh, Mesa, the Fitzroy Gym, uh, incredible place and has been for a long time. And also, you know, with the charcoal, the inclusion of charcoal lane trainees, it was um, a dedicated young group of um, people that uh, um, gave up their time and energy to be a part of this process and actually recording elder stories. So it was a multitude of people coming together, young and old, to talk about what those stories actually mean in the context of the historical story of Fitzroy and the coming together of, of people from all walks of life coming into Melbourne looking for a place. Fitzroy was the ideal place to to be and congregate and, and be there for support and um, finding a way in the city. There was always a place and there was always people to to talk to and, and be around um, in the community spirit of, of, of things at that, uh, during the course of those times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Such a rich history embedded in Fitzroy. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, we brought you on the show today to not only promote the Ellen Good app, but also an opportunity for young, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, 
So, yeah, if there's any young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening uh, to the show, um, please, yeah, like reach out to your networks and let everyone know that uh, the Yell and Good app is looking um, to produce some artwork for the, uh, for the app. And so there's going to be a prize. Can you tell me a little bit more about the artwork that you're looking for yeah. and also the yeah. prize <laughs> that's uh, available? All righty, the art prize, Yell and Good art prize. Um, Young Good is currently seeking submissions from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists living on or connected to the land we now call Victoria to visually represent the Young Good app. Um, the background uh, backdrop to the story is Young Good. Yesterday in Wurrung is an innovative augmented reality experience expressed entirely through sound, uh, accessible via location-specific mobile app. Wherever you walk within the application, you will be able to access stories told by Aboriginal elders, activists, community leaders, and everyday people travelling inside ancient and modern soundscapes in an entirely oral virtual world. This layer of sound story will transport people to different events in this place through time, deepening their understanding of and connection to place, people, politics, and history. And the good thing about the continuation of uh, the storylines, um, it's like the continual song lines, really. Uh, Yellen Group brings together a collection of intimately inspiring stories told by individuals connected to specific locations. Uh, another great feature, as I mentioned previously, the project was, uh, has trained and employed young Aboriginal story gatherers to interview, record and edit stories shared by their elders and other community members. This involves grandchildren, interviewing grandparents, nieces and nephews, interviewing aunts and uncles, and uh, an amazing array of stories. And young people having the opportunity to meet with and hear from respected elders are so important. The result of a collection of intimate biblical stories told by community. So, and here we find ourselves in this situation... So what we want to do is Young Group helps to connect students, tourists, and the local community with these important first-hand stories. So the intent, a theme intent of the, of the design artwork, the intent of the design artwork is to provide artistic inspiration for visual identity and user interface graphics of the Young Group app. Young Group app. The artwork will be used to represent the project and hope and what it hopes to achieve and to guide the design of elements for for use in the app. Um, the inspiration is all born out of all the stories that have been told by the elders and by people in general and by community members. And, and that is the inspiration for all of this, um, for their, their stories to be held in perpetuity um, for anybody that may use the app um, and comes into contact with that experience. So uh, there is... Uh, you know, the branding of the project by a graphic designer, which is going to be uh, something really specific to this. The app is an oral experience, and therefore we are seeking simplicity in the, the design that will lend itself to a clear user interface. So if you're out there, please get in contact. Um, it's a great opportunity to use your wear, your skill, your diversity, and your knowledge to put into something that's going to be so amazing for now and for the future. And and, uh, you know, community storytelling, truth-telling, self-determination, knowledge sharing, all education, connection, reconciliation, healing, and discovery of your stories throughout the, <clears throat> pardon me, act of walking and listening. Okay, so here's some of the things I can go through, Cal. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are submission requirements. 
open to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists living on or connected to the land we now call Victoria. Arthur's statement about the artwork, its meaning and its alignment with the theme, 200 words minimum. A copy of the preliminary uh, design concept or finished artwork submitted as a high-resolution PDF, photo, scan or image file. Uh, young artists and emerging artists are encouraged to apply. Uh, email submission to zoe at storyscope.com.au. Key dates to remember. Okay. So submission deadline, 11th of September 2020. Announcement of prize winners, 25th September 2020. Finalisation of winning artwork, 9th of October 2020. Prize ceremony and launch of the artwork, 20th November 2020 at the soft launch of the app for elders, story gathers, gatherers and community. Um, and as part of that dynamic too, uh, Carl, is there's the uh, selection panel too, uh, which is um, consists of all of the working group. Uh, selection panel comprises of representatives from Young Group project partners and stakeholders. Um, Young Group project working group, <coughs> elders and story gatherers, pardon me. Young Pages, Community, Melbourne Community Indigenous Film Collective, Wurundjeri Corporation, RMIT University, Master of Animation Games and Interactivity, the University of Melbourne School of Design Storyscape, and those are the selection panel mob. Prizes. First prize for this amazing thing is $1,800. Initial payment of 800 upon, I'm going to say that again. Uh-huh. Prizes. First prize. $1,800 initial payment of uh, 800 upon announcement of the winner with the balance to be paid upon finalisation of the design artwork. Second prize is $500. Third prize is 300 Conditions of entry. Um, we will have these <clears throat> all this out put out too as well um, into various places for you to also gather and I'll put them online too as well. Uh, conditions of entry. Um, it's the uh, the art prize is open to all Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander artists living on or connected to land. We now call Victoria, and um, and it goes on to say quite a bit after that. Um, all entrants consent to Yellow Grid represented by Storyscape using the winning artwork for publicity and promotion of the Yellow Grid app, including the story behind the artwork. This may include, but is not limited to media interviews, social media posts on the Yellow Grid website and photographs. Okay, our contact details for this. Interested artists may contact a Yelling Goose representative to explore ideas for the design and ask questions about the themes of Yelling Goose. And they are Bobby Nichols, Yelling Goose Working Group. Um, Nichols Robert1946 at gmail.com and Zoe Dawkins, Yelling Goose Project Coordination, Zoe at storescape.com.au. And the number for her is 0434104942. So there you are, Carl. So that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, (laughs) And, yeah, we'll definitely put all of that information up on the 3CR website as well. Yeah, good. So let's get down to the (laughs) (laughs) nitty-gritty. And, yeah, for more information, you can also just look up Yellingwood on Facebook. So www.facebook.com slash Yellingwood. And um, there's yeah, all the information about yeah. the event and information about the art prize. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Is there anything is there, any, is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with? Um, yeah, I just want to say that it's it's probably a really good 
point of reference for for younger people and old uh, elders to be communicating um, in 2020. Um, it's a long time between drinks um, in the context of uh, having a, a, a place uh, that is was recognised and is recognised as a very substantial part of our historical history. So, um, and that theme has been based on, you know, including um, the elders and their and their specific stories to specific places. Um, and some of the stories are really beautiful in the context of of telling very personal stories that relate to their, um, whether they were growing up or whether they were younger people at the time and coming together as, as a people to, uh, to be in a position to voice their ideas and share the strength that they have. And um, so I take my hat off to all of the storytellers, uh, to the younger people that we're interviewing and everyone involved in this project. They've been such a wonderful acquisition for the whole and wider community and uh, whoever takes on um, the responsibility of this in the future, um, it will just keep growing and growing and growing. So, uh, you know, the launch coming up for next year and uh, 2021 um, will be a significant point in our history uh, relating to, to Melbourne Town and uh, Fitzroy in particular. And But uh, more... Importantly, I think for the whole Aboriginal community to be be in the position to have their stories heard and told in the first instance, and I think that's a a, a big uh, it's kind of a monumental thing now for for those stories to be expressed in the way that they're expressed. So, thank you to all that have uh, participated, to all the elders. Love you all and to all the young ones and to the working group. Um, yeah, absolutely fantastic job. And, yes, to all you listeners, um, so for any young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists out there, get your submissions in by the 11th of September and all the details will be on the 3CR website yeah. for Thursday morning breakfast. Thank you so much, Robbie, for joining us this morning. Oh, pleasure, Carl. Thank you for having me and uh, have a great day. <laughs> you too. See ya. And just then you heard a conversation that I had with Robbie Bundle about Yellengood, an innovative augmented reality experience that is expressed entirely through sound. The app will feature stories told by Aboriginal elders, activists, community leaders and everyday people. Three C R Community Radio. 855 AM. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and now we're going to go to another song. This is Buggy Lam Bagan by Birds, who has co written this with his cousin Fred Leone. And it was written for the documentary Looky Looky Here Comes Cookie. So just a little bit of background, Bagilam Bagan is Butchala for Fighting Boomerang.
patiently waiting for someone I ain't never seen before to say he's a captain of men, but ain't believing our love. From the land of the white skin, he's self-righteous, a murder without license. With the spear, I'm the nicest, thinking that I might just wait till night hits. Then I move in silence, over my when the moon at a tides. And my soul is defined, I'm consumed by desire to kill. Any white devil wanna test my will, then he finna get burnt by the fire I feel. Look him in the eye and hold his spirit still. He's hoping I don't catch him, but I know I will. Stand on the shoreline, They came in peace, but our blood still stains the beach. Roll the dice, we gon' play for keeps. The sacred place ain't a place to preach. No, no, no. No white faith and a black belief. No, no, no. Better pray that our spears don't reach. He's cold, white, hot, I'ma make it bleed. Leading to the first fleet. Sicker than disease that he bring from overseas. No matter where you flee, I will always be. In the darkest of night, your descendant will see me. Standing on the shoreline. If you're just joining us, that was Bagila Bagan by Birds featuring Fred Leone. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. 
or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Next up, we're returning to our poetry and writing segment, and today we're going to hear a text written and read by Snack Syndicate, two rats, Astrid LaRange and Andrew Brooks. The text they'll read is titled Groundwork and was part of a larger project, Endless Study, Infinite Debt. Facilitated by Snack Syndicate, this ongoing project brings together artists, writers and activists to build space for dialogue and collective learning. So this text was the first of a series produced by Snack Syndicate and collaborators for the project, and hopefully we're going to be able to bring you a few more of those texts over the coming weeks. For now, here's Snack Syndicate reading Groundwork. Groundwork. Fred Merton says, what's deep is also really simple. What makes something deep is also that which makes it difficult and therefore worth struggling for. Moten again. Though it might seem like talking with and not to the congregation is the point, the deep and simple secret is not talking, but listening. What do you hear? How do you hear it? I picture a sound system pieced together from old speakers salvaged from the side of the road or rescued from piles of rubbish. I listen for a tone before it sounds. A deep bass note with a history both militant and tender. I wait for an echo to return from a space I have not yet inhabited. I listen for ghosts that haunt our present and usher us toward new futures. I place a hand to my ear or I place your hand on the back of my neck. I listen for how the sounds that move you are moving me. How do we listen when we are apart? Jay shows me an image of two men standing on a roundabout, blocking the passage of a semi-trailer. In the face of this enormous vehicle, they are unwavering, firm, staunch. Jay says getting organised is easier than we might sometimes think, that our organisation might necessarily take the form of disorganisation. I turn to the person next to me and hatch a plan. If listening is a site for the organisation of politics, then how do we listen to and for a politics of disorganised organisation? In between meetings, I set the timer on my phone and get into plank position. I squeeze my core and count down with the app. I run up the narrow set of stairs from the lounge room to the bedroom while the app counts down the time it takes to boil an egg. I make lunch and sweep up the bodies of tiny roaches who died overnight by eating soft dabs of poison. During one meeting, I realise that the bed is unmade in the background. I imagine my manager noticing the wrinkled blanket, the soft, slept-in sheets, the bloodstains. I try to see if the books on the bedside table are visible to someone peering in from the screen. Marx, Hartman, Boyer. Stories of capital, survival, death. During dinner I feed my child spirals of pasta while shouting into the camera. I look into the interiors of my boss's houses. One room has very expensive art. 
One is decked out entirely with lime green soft furnishings. One has arranged the camera to show only a blank wall. A message arrives from B. She is watching a webinar in which a bunch of white men wearing headsets are rhapsodising from their bedrooms about the future of teaching and the utopia of online classrooms. She is sitting in the car out the front of her house using her phone as a Wi-Fi hotspot. The car is the only place where she can't be found by her child, the only place where she can swap one kind of work for another. What is all this extra work for? Malcolm Harris asks this question while considering the enormous amount of unwaged labour that has reoriented people's lives as they move their paid jobs home to join their unpaid jobs or as they are stepped down. In today's crisis, we are building tomorrow's normal. What is the sound of a machine breaking down? What noise did this machine make as it refuses to stop? Today, when I woke, I was already exhausted. T sends me an image made by Charles Fremont in 1894 when he was assisting the French scientist and chronophotographer Etienne Jules Marais. The multiply exposed image, a technique pioneered by Marais, shows blacksmiths working at an anvil. The arc of their hammers, the force of each blow, the immensity of labour is traced in the blur of the image. The two bodies are suddenly a multitude, repeating over and over again a single action. I stare at the picture, straining to listen to the bodies within it. Each day we wake to sell our labour so that we might endure our lives. Each night we dream our escape from this relation. Sadia Hartman writes that the chorus bears it, that the chorus bears all of it for us. I know this to be true, and so I strain to listen for the song that we might sing together, for the bent note that folds back on me, for the call that is given in the response. I listen for a sound that I may not have heard, but will certainly recognise. My ear, an opening, my skin, a drum. The chorus, writes Hartman, is the vehicle for another kind of story, not of the great man or the tragic hero, but one in which all modalities play a part, where the headless group incites change, where mutual aid provides the resource for collective action, not leader and mass, where the untranslatable songs and seeming nonsense make good the promise of revolution. At the end of his book Mutual Aid, Kropotkin summarises his argument for mutual aid. He makes this argument against other theories for how humans survive and why. In short, he writes, neither the crushing powers of the centralised state nor the teachings of mutual hatred and pitiless struggle, which came adorned with the attributes of science from obliging philosophers and sociologists, could weed out the feeling of human solidarity. This solidarity is rooted, he explains, through practice. We talk or listen or send notes or sound a call or find a shape for our desires. We shout over the fence or into the window, tune our ear to the soft sounds into and out of houses. Care, argues Kropotkin, is necessary for survival because that which we must survive, the misery of capitalism and its forms of governmentality, requires a kind of solidarity that works not just towards freedom 
but against death. In the pandemic, this question of care against death is everywhere. And the question of how much death should be tolerated in order to care for the future of capital is being asked daily, more loudly and bluntly than usual. The answer to that question not only requires the refusal of its order, it is capitalism that should die and not us, but also the reclamation of care. Care is not just that which is done at home, off the clock, from the goodness of our hearts, and care is not just what we do to fill the gaps left by the state or the capital relation. Care is directly against the state and the market, against the death that both depend on. I stick my head around a corner, my body a fold. The late Pauline Oliveros offers this score for listening. Walk so silently that the bottoms of your feet become ears. I walk with M along the Cook's River and afterwards we lie on the grass while my child listens with her feet. She is not silent. She she shrieks with joy as she steps across the soft green covering. I am sure that she hears the earth through her feet and after spending so much time hunkered down inside, feels the experience deeply. M and I had walked west along the river, inhaling the stench of the Cook's a composite of industrial runoff, rubbish, mangroves, ibis shit, casuarina needles and other people's sweating, perfumed bodies. We walk past partially submerged shopping trolleys and a wall of graffiti that includes a portrait of Garfield reclining with an accompanying imperative, never work. M told me about the chompy, wool workers and other unrepresented labourers in Florence in the 14th century who revolted in the wake of the Black Death and took control of the city. Their revolt was a rejection of the heavy taxes imposed by the ruling oligarchs, a strike against the concentration of wealth and the inevitable inequality that was transferred downward. We talked about organising in this moment, about the need for it and the difficulty of it, I'm buoyed by M's calm resolve, his patient militancy. As we lay on the ground, under the sky, I listen to the air and its currents of speech, wind and distant engines. I thought about the hills between the cooks and my house, a wet, windy passage through Wongal country. I thought about the social formations that have scored the land over and over again, the toxic pelt that settles in the canals, the thick plugs of bush and scrub, the etched flight paths above, now mostly silent. My child traced invisible circles around us, looping together our bodies on the grass. She left small gaps in the lines, leaving spaces for what might enter or what might turn on its heels and disappear. This, then, is an invitation to listen collectively toward the possibility of something else. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and just then you heard Groundwork, a text written and read by Snack Syndicate as part of Endless Study, Infinite Debt. To find out more about Snack Syndicate, you can visit their website, snacksyndicate.net, and we will link to the text and their website in our show notes. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Hey all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. 
Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Community Radio, 855 AM. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Junaid is a Rohingya refugee currently living in Jakarta, Indonesia. He was studying engineering in Myanmar and then he was forced to abandon his chosen career path and flee into exile. He has since become a student of political science as well as a writer and human rights activist searching for a safe and durable solution for refugees in Indonesia and around the world. So he joins us here from Jakarta to talk about the current situations for refugee in Indonesia in the light of COVID-19, forced migration, and especially from the Rohingya perspective. Hi, Junaid, and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. Uh, so firstly, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do in Jakarta? Well, uh, I am now living uh, myself. I used to live under uh, IUM, International Organizations, and where I was facilitated by the uh, by the by this organization, I would receive shelter and a monthly allowance. But earlier this year, I had to leave Macarthur because of my journalism and activism. And now I'm living in Jakarta, uh, you know, uh, myself alone. Yeah. Um, and so, hundreds and thousands of Rohingya uh, have. Le- have fled from Myanmar since the brutal targeted military crackdown in 2017, amounting to genocide and ethnic cleansing. Uh, So to give listeners a background and and context, could you tell us a bit about the persecution of Rohingya people? Well, uh, we Rohingya have been persecuted for generations since 1982, uh, when our citizenship was cancelled by the Burmese military, by uh, the wing government. Then we were left uh, stateless, and we have been living in our own country as illegal immigrants. 
So we were denied our basic right, basic right to education. And we couldn't pursue higher education and we can't travel from city to city. And we have to seek permission if we want to travel to another village, even within the city. So there was a lot of restriction of movement on, on our, uh, on our business. So Rohingya cannot apply for any sort of government employment. So they have to find their own employment and and a lot of the uh, prosecution has been conducted by the military themselves and also the government. So uh, the, the Rohingya were being forced to labor and and their homes, their home and other properties are seized by the government for no reason, and and they are occasionally, you know, uh, dragged away to the detention and the imprisonment for no apparent reason. And then they will store a lot of money and saying that you have, uh, uh, you know, brothers in overseas that is supporting you. You need to give us like every month uh, $100, $200. So there were a lot of extortions, prosecution, discriminations, uh, you know, uh, happening against the Rohingya. And in 2012, when I was at the university in Situe, the Burmese government has incited a systematic uh, violence against uh, the Rohingya. The, you know, uh, they use this kind of uh, tactic and strategy, saying that uh, women from Rakhine community, Rakhine are the uh, Buddhist community, uh, that uh, women from Rakhine community were raped by Rohingya, and then this inspired this inspire the other Rakhine community to attack Rohingya. And then when the violence erupted, the the military and the government staff, you know, uniformed themselves as public, then shoot it toward Rohingya. So a lot of uh, like uh, nearly 2,000 Rohingya have been killed uh, in in 2012. So. We were in the university dorm, university campus, and when the Rakhine extremists started to burn down the Rohingya villages, uh, we were like in the dorms, and and the fire started to burn all over the village. Then uh, we had no options, so we were uh, uh, we were told by the uh, university authority that we must leave the uh, the university to and and go back to our our home city then then the university authority helped us uh, you know to return back to our uh, to our uh, uh, home city but if we had stayed there for more for a few more days we would have died uh, you know burned down in the fire because the whole village uh, had been burnt into edge um, and since then the violence you know, continued to escalate, and many Rohingya uh, Iraqi state, uh, you know, uh, were have, have been forced to flee to Malaysia, to Bangladesh, to neighboring Asian countries. And in 2013, the military government has conducted another uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, which is which we which we now call uh, they said uh, a crackdown or you know, a clearance operations, uh, you know, to, they said that there are many uh, Rohingya, uh, Rohingya fighter 
that are forming group to uh, attack the Burmese government, but there was just an excuse to execute their long, uh, long uh, planet strategy to, to uh, you know, eradicate refugees, eradicate Rohingya from Rakhine State. So the 2017 was the largest scale of the massacre of Rohingya. And in that, in that, since 2017, almost all the villages in my city have now uh, become green, you know, green grounds. There are no houses anymore in that village. And what we can see right now are green fields. There are no more houses. So, like, only my city, that is, like, my home, which is in the city is now somehow safe, but the rest of the surrounding villages in my city, that's that's called Mondo, has been wiped out. There are no more no more villages, no more Rohingya villages, and in other cities the same. So the uh, Rohingya population from the beginning was about uh, uh, 3.5. Now the remaining Rohingya in Myanmar is only around a thousand, a thousand Rohingya. So and they are one million in Bangladesh, and the rest are spread uh, to some uh, to to some countries all over the world. And and the remaining Rohingya are around one thousand, and like nearly third of them have been disappeared or killed by the Burmese government. So now we are like dinosaur, a loss, uh, a loss uh, generations, and we are uh, like disappearing from this world like dinosaur. So if things continue like this uh, in the future, I don't think our Rohingya ethnic city will survive in this world. We may gonna, you know, extinct from being existent in this world in the future. And um, and as you said, many uh, Rohingya went to Bangladesh. There's a very large refugee camp there. Mm. And many came to uh, Indonesia as well. Um, and you said in your article that many were on uh, trying to get to uh, countries that have signed the refugee convention like Australia even though Australia has not a good record whatsoever with refugees. Um, so I, I, I guess, you, you know, you're in Indonesia at the moment. What is, um, what is the situation for Rohingya refugees in Indonesia? Well, uh, there is uh, no uh, a specific situation for the Rohingya refugees. The situation is the same for all the refugees. But recently, some refugee, uh, some Rohingya landed in Aceh. Uh, they were rescued by the uh, by the Indonesian uh, fishermen. And uh, actually, in the first place, there were around 800 Rohingya boarded from the Bangladesh refugee camp. And when they arrived in Thailand, the Thailand authority pushed them back into the sea. And from there, they spread into a small boat and some landed to Malaysia, some landed to Thailand, and some were washed away by the waves in the, in the oceans. And 
they were pushed toward Indonesia and the fishermen saw them and they rescued them. But there are still 300 refugees miss, sorry, 300 Rohingya missing from that boat somewhere in the ocean. Now the question is, now that the uh, Indonesian government have rescued them, so what gonna be next? What would be their future? What's gonna happen to them? Well, the point is that I would say they would be better off to die in the ocean than being rescued in Indonesia uh, regarding the fact uh, and the reality of refugees in Indonesia. There are around uh, 14,000 refugees living in Indonesia. And, and you know, why I say that they would be better off to die in the sea because they're going to die here every day suffering from mentality, suffering from their denial of basic right. They will be detained for years and then after, after the detention, they will be moved to IOM accommodation where they will be confined for their life with no certainty of their future. So sometimes I regret, you know, uh, to leave my country. Uh, I believe that sometime maybe I may die at some, at some point in my country if I hadn't left my country. But in Indonesia, I, I am like suffering from, uh, like every day from suffering from mentality, from uh, uncertainty, anxiety, you know, for the past eight years that I have been in Indonesia. So this is the situations of many refugees in Indonesia. Uh, in the detention, you know, refugees are treated as criminal and they are locked up for 24 hours in the cell. And when they are released after three or five years uh, from uh, being in detention, they are then moved to IUM accommodation. So IUM accommodation is a systematic open prison. There are a lot of restriction <clears throat> that refugee face in IUM accommodation. There is a curfew from 6 p.m. till 10 a.m. <coughs> Excuse me. Refugees are not allowed to uh, drive any uh, uh, vehicles, any motor or car, they are, they can't buy any or on any sort of, any sort of vehicles and, and their security that, that always, you know, disrupt them, like shake them every time. If they are still in the rooms, they can't bring any friend or they can visit to, uh, any other friends. And, and yeah, they, the, and, they don't have any sort of right. They are, uh, there is a post on the, uh, on the refugee accommodation that says that these are refugees and this is an immigration detention which warns the local to isolate themselves from refugees. So they are also suffering from the, uh, socialize, uh, socializations with the local and they are like isolated among the local and they don't have also any basic right to work. They can't go to school. So they are living like, you know, what I can describe as cattle. You know, they are living, uh, uh, you know, in a zoo, you know, like animals. Just eating two-time food and sleeping all day, all night. Most of the refugees sleep through the days and wake up like, you know, like in the afternoon just to eat and then they go to sleep again.
because there are no activities and because of this a lot of refugees are suffering from mental disabilities and every year i am recording you know two or three refugees commit suicide and die from from uh, from from from, uh, from unknown diseases and and uh, you know this week uh, a lot of rohingya refugees in makassar have protested you know uh, in front of the uh, legislative office uh because there were there were many many refugees in 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 makassar who has been suffering from various kind of infected diseases and the iom denied the treatment and one of the refugees right now is in a hospital he is counting his day uh to die in the hospital he has requested iom for several time for the operation but he has been denied and received very delayed medication which has worsened his condition so here's just one example i have i have seen myself and experienced many refugees die uh, due to lack of medications and and untimely treatments so this is the uh, uh, this is the refugee situation in indonesia so that's why i say and those rohingya that are rescued by indonesian government would be better of dying in the ocean in one day than being rescued to die here every day because suffering from uncertainty suffering from mentality is way better than being silent that's what i believe and and you know just last week a refugee committed uh, not uh, last month a refugee committed suicide a young refugee he's just 22 years old i have written uh, his biography on our magazine and also uh yeah uh, and i also write uh, his story for the sbs so yeah this is the situation uh, how can a person live in this kind of situation so i uh, as i said earlier that i have to flee from makassar that's because I was forced to flee from Makassar because I am speaking out against this human rights violation I am writing to international media and my life has particularly become very difficult I have been threatened by the authorities for several time to be detained to be detained and when we conducted protests uh, 20 28 of my friend were uh, solitarily confined in the detentions and and tortured and many were beaten by the police uh, at the protests so whenever we conduct protests they always react violently so we are not allowed to rally any peaceful protests uh, in indonesia as well yeah, this um has a lot of similarities to what uh people who've been uh placed in detention centers uh by the Australian government in places like Manus Island and Nauru um how do you see i guess um the responsibility of countries like Australia in the suffering of of people um and how do you see how do you see the similarities with the detention camps for example that Australia has um, to what is happening in Indonesia 
the uh, Australian detention camp right now. The refugees that are detained in Australia. You mean? Yeah, but it's all part of this, the same system. They're detained in places like Ma, uh, yeah. Manus and Nauru, and here it's still. Um, well, uh, what I can say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. Well, what I can say is that everything happening in the region toward the refugee situation, it's all come from the Australia's influence. So in since 2013, Australia implemented this so-called sovereign border operation policy. And many people have been ill-informed about this policy. They were prosecuted, they were, uh, you know, uh, uh, told by the, by the Australian government that this policy, securing the border, is important in order to save people from dying in the ocean who are trying to cross the ocean to come to Australia. And that was one of the tactics they used uh, to naturalize this policy. But in reality, this policy is not about with the, with the sea issue. It's about the, uh, it's about the influence and the hegemonizations in other countries. So this policy has not ends with the refugees in Manus and Nauru. The, this policy is not just, uh, you know, started from 2013. It's been from 2000s, you know. Australia and Indonesia and other uh, countries has been cooperating on controlling irregular migrants. So uh, in order to anticipate, you know, this policy in Indonesia and other regions as well, Australia has, you know, uh, found that many uh, intelligence services in Indonesia and IUM. IUM is the main pillar of this uh, deterrent policy. IU, uh, Australia supply every every policy through IUM in the region, and 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 Australia. So what I would like to say, what I can conclude here before I give more details, uh, is that Indonesia is the biggest Australian deterrent, Australian, uh, sorry, detention, you know, after the Manus and Maru. So people have been very ill-informed about this. People always think that refugees in Indonesia are not Australian issue. Yes, we are in a different country, but we are suffering. We are affected with the same policy. Uh, you know, the detention of refugees in Indonesia have started way before the Manus and Maru. And, and the Australian government and the other NGOs, you know, have not uh, revealed this, uh, this secret because Indonesia is one uh, of the uh, respected country and they care about the Indonesia reputation, unlike Manus and Nauru. So that's why nobody has been informed Many, like a few people have been informed about the refugee detention in Indonesia. So we are indirectly detained by the Australia in Indonesia through Australians' influence uh, of, uh, with, uh, you know, influence such as they have, you know, uh, funded intelligence service, immigration detention center, and also the police and, and the IUM. At some point, all other 
uh, NGOs that are working for refugees are also involved in this deterrent policy because they believe that the only way to stop the boat going to Australia is to persecute refugees, oppress them so that they can give up and go back to their country. So they use this strategy, you know, to oppress the refugee, to harden their life in order for them to give up and go back to their country. So we are all affected by the uh, Australian deterrent policy, uh, just like uh, the way refugees are kept in the Nauru and Manus. And the other worst thing about this deterrent policy is that uh, until 2013 and 2014, there were uh, there was a fair resettlement process for refugees, not just to Australia but to other countries. But since Australia interfered with this policy, with this border policy things, these chances of resettlement to other countries have also become very slim. And and then their refugee resettlement to other countries have also become very, very, uh, very less. And, and, and the reason is that, so in order to stop the refugee coming to Indonesia, they have to stop all kind of assert and motivation that refugee might seek in Indonesia. So, and and what we become right now is we are now serving Australian deterrent policy. Uh, Sometimes we can consider ourselves as political element or policy element of Australia, or we are being used as pawn by Australia to serve its deterrent policy in Indonesia. Um, and uh, I, I have a question that I was going to ask uh, uh, later, um, but maybe I'll just ask it ask it now since we're talking about Australia and sort of the broader uh, broader outlook. Um, because also uh, there are Australian companies, mining companies, and gas exploration companies that have recently. I think earlier this year just signed um, exploration contracts in the Rakhine Ra- Ra- State province. Um, uh, how do you see this, uh, these sort of like broader uh, multinational corporate interests in Myanmar since it's opened up for investment um, and the ethnic cleansing happening to your people? Well, uh I can see, yep, uh, that's true. Some of the countries are now trying to cooperate with Myanmar to industrialize and, and get mutual benefit uh, at international level. But the point is, the thing is that many countries have already been doing many things in, in Myanmar. And partly because Myanmar is a, a still, uh, what we can say, Greenland, undeveloped country, which means there are still a lot of natural resources, unutilized resources in Myanmar. And many neighboring countries, as, as Australia is one of the long-eyed country on Myanmar resources. So if they were supposed to have, you know, Myanmar and the Rohingya people, if their approach is, their intention is to have the Rohingya in Myanmar, then they would have done this long time ago because Rohingya persecution is not happening today. 
it's been there for for ages for years so what i would like to say everything happened in international level in international politics it's all because of the interest that they seek in other country and as you can see from china and india they have now you know drilled a long uh, you know wild pipe in in sectway and and also uh, you know uh, there is uh, a very big industry that are pulled in 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 rakhine state uh, by both india and china so their interest in rakhine state is not rohingya it's their resource rakhine state in all of our member there are a lot of natural resources that are still unutilized unused so their interest is in their resource and that's what i can say and i don't think they are, they are in particular uh, there to help the rohingya people because rohingya are still in the in the camp living in the camp in in rakhine state still in the war zone they are seized in the in their city so what is the australian government and other international community and countries that says they are going there to save people or oh, sorry uh so i don't see any changes there rather mm-hmm. rohingya situation somehow getting worse day by day yeah and we can see uh some similarities in places like kurdistan where there's a huge gas pipeline that goes through that land uh and then the control for that land and the political uh geopolitics that goes behind that um and i wanted to ask about the the covid-19 situation and how that's affecting uh, refugee communities in um in indonesia uh so many people living in temporary housing and and those um and under these curfew uh locked laws and that sort of thing can you tell me how a bit about um how the pandemic has affected uh people currently living in indonesia and also people still fleeing the violence and the persecution mm-hmm. in Myanmar well uh starting from bangladesh uh in rakhine state there has not been any confirmed case yet that's because there is no test service there <laughs> so there is no test service there is no medical facilities i uh, wrote an article about the medication in rakhine state uh, you know my own mother has been suffering from serious diabetes and there are no medication at all there are no hospital there is one hospital there is specifically for the rakhine community rakhine men the other type of buddhist people and so rohingya have no proper medication there so coming toward the bangladesh in bangladesh uh, there have been many confirmed cases and some refugee some rohingya have already died there because of uh, you know Uh, lack of uh, hygiene and sanitizing sanit- uh, sanitization of their camps and and they these people are actually very uh, very vulnerable to the virus because most of the most of the refugees there are suffering from various kind of infected diseases due to lack of hygiene and supply there and and, and yep yeah, so if the wider community has infe- has got infected there is going to be another 
kind of massacre of Rohingya in Bangladesh came. So thankfully the case is not too serious at the moment, but I'm, I'm not sure about the future. And in Indonesia, uh, there has not been, uh, uh, there has been only around three or, yeah, three or four confirmed cases which are in Makassar. And last, uh, last week a refugee died uh, from COVID. And, and the other thing is that uh, this virus is not actually hurting refugee physically, but is destroying refugees' mental issue because they are afraid, uh, you know, uh, being infected because they are living in community house, which is full of around three or four hundred refugees in each accommodation, and they are uh, joined with a roommate. So they always live in fear, like who might be carrying the virus, and because they and and the other thing is that they cannot separate themselves. They have to cook in the same kitchen, and they have to do everything together. So they 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 it is impossible for them to uh, uh, to to keep self isolation or social distancing. So this is not happening for them. This is not a, an option for them. So that's why they are like suffering uh, uh, from severe mental mentality, and which is uh, they are already suffering from mentality, and the pandemic has has exacerbated their their suffering because they have they live in fear of uh, COVID uh, nineteen every day, and on the other hand, that there is no proper medication supply for refugees, they can't get tax. There is no tax service for refugees, so which means we don't know who is carrying the virus among the refugee community. If people want to find out more about these mm -hmm. stories and a bit more about uh, your work, how can they yes. do so? Well, I publish articles regularly uh, in some of the uh, Australian media, SBS and others. And the other thing that we are trying to do to promote the uh, the awareness of refugees is that we have launched a magazine, a refugee magazine in Indonesia, which we name as Acropilago. And in this magazine, the writers are from the refugees, and I'm one of the editors, and and the other uh, the other founder are from uh, one of the from one of them is from Australia, and another one is from. Somalia. So what we do with this magazine is to enable the refugees to write their own stories so that people can listen their real voice can can read the refugees' real voice. And this is the first time that ever happens uh, in, in, in refugee contexts. So and many refugees are now being trained to become writers. And which means this magazine is not just to publish refugee story, but we also train the refugee to become writers. And now, uh, like around uh, 50 refugees uh, from from uh, different region in Indonesia are being trained. And and this is one of this is the uh, one of the great opportunity, you know, uh, for refugee to raise their voice because we believe that you know, writing is the most powerful tool and uh, writing can change the uh, uh, 
the the system. So that's 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 our belief, and that's why we created this uh, magazine. And the other thing that I am involved to raise the awareness is a documentary that we created uh, since uh, 20 since 2018. And in this document, this is the first ever documentary that will be contextualized, contextualize all this uh, Australian deterrent policy and the real life story of refugees in Indonesia. And and the and this documentary is actually named after the street that most refugees ironically place in in Makassar. So I was living in a street called the Pioneer of Freedom Street. So I was not free there. <laughs> I can see the freedom, but I have no freedom. So that's why we choose to name this documentary as the Freedom Street documentary. And this documentary, uh, you know, have interviewed many uh, as part uh, from Australia and from all over the countries. And this have this documentary has also the potential to bring uh, a safe solution uh, for the refugees because awareness is where the solution comes from. So these are the two things that I am now involved to raise the awareness. And at the same time, I am also regularly publishing refugees' stories in, in international media. Janaid, thank you so much for joining us. So that was J.N. Janaid, who is a Rohingya refugee and journalist currently living in Jakarta, Indonesia. And so he joined us from Jakarta to talk about the situation for refugees in Indonesia and the added COVID-19 pandemic dynamics, as well as the forced migration from the Rohingya perspective. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. That was our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. So uh, after the news with Kate Kelly, we heard from Robbie Bundle, who joined Carly to discuss the Yalanguth Art Prize. And Yalanguth means yesterday in Wairong, and it's an in innovative augmented reality experience. And they are seeking submissions from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists living on or connected to the land we call Victoria. And submissions close on September 11th. And then we heard from Groundwork, a text written and read by Snack Syndicate. And then we heard from Jane Jonyad, who is a Rohingya refugee and journalist currently living in Jakarta, Indonesia. And he told us, or as we just heard, about the life in limbo for people seeking asylum in Indonesia, which is a direct cause of the Australian detention or deferral uh, industrial complex. Uh, join us again next week. And up next is Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.